Hello, and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Matt Mose. I'm Josh Chappell. And today, we are going to talk about the Team Serious Open Recap, a discussion on the politics of concession, Burning Wish, and the recent Burning Long List from Stephen Menendian, and lastly, our food and drink reviews from Sandusky and beyond. So Team Serious Open, I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. So we had the uh, Team Serious Open a couple weekends ago in Sandusky, Ohio. We had 17 players. I, I think everything went as well as it could be expected. I think we had uh, about the turnout that Jeff and I predicted, except that there was only one dredge deck played by misanthropist Jerry Yang. We ended up cutting to top four of Sam Crolla with Rug Delver versus Mark Trogdon and a welder deck that he called Welder Poop. And then I played Forge Master Staves against William Rosa and Jace Vault. Sam and I both won our matches and split the finals. So the top two ended up being Rug Delver and Forge Master Staves. How did you do with Staves? That was the deck that you said that you felt most confident about playing. What was your record? I went 3-0-1 in the Swiss and then won my top four game. How did you win most of your games? Was Forge Master actually super relevant as far as tutoring or... Yeah, you know, Forge Master was pretty relevant. My my feeling on the deck is that it's very much a combo deck. It's not a mud deck. I've cut the spheres and tangle wires and things that other Forge Master mud lists are playing. My goal is to resolve either Metal Worker and Staff of Domination or Forge Master in the first two turns and try and win from that. And then sort of to support that, I have four Lodestone Golems, four Chalices, and four Thorns of Amethyst. Mostly to slow my opponent down and also to give me things to sack to, to Forge Master. And you're playing how many Buried Ruins in that? Uh, I'm playing four. I know that uh, in our game, you totally blew me out when I let a turn one Metalworker <laughs> metal resolve and I had a Grim Lava Mancer in hand, so I was like, oh, I can kill the Metalworker. Next turn, you're tapped your Metalworker for like, I don't know, like 12 mana or something. Yeah, and I countered like your. I countered your staff of domination. You were like, "Oh, I'll just bury ruin and get it back and just kill you." Yeah. And yeah, not countering the turn one metalworker was pretty greedy. Yeah, it was. Yeah, did it was did you let it resolve, or did you not have a counter? <laughs> no, I let it resolve because I felt that I could take care of him next turn with the lava mancer. I felt that you had five cards in hand, and I felt that probably two of them were lands, so you would be <laughs> getting like six mana. But you had five artifacts and drew another artifact, which was a total no, blowout. I, I had I had five artifacts and a and a buried ruin after I drew. Yeah, I think lava mancer is way too slow for that. Yeah. I think letting letting the metalworker resolve there is probably terrible. Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> I I actually found twice in the tournament because I played against a, another metalworker deck as well that if I had the means to stop the metalworker I should have done it. the The second time I had a an ingotchewer and a lava mancer and I had to choose whether ingotchewer the metalworker immediately or lava mancer kill him next turn and I chose ingotchewer the next time and that was totally the right play because I would have gotten totally blown out had I waited <laughs> for the lava mancer. So yeah, I. Uh, I've got my eye on Metalworker now because he has wronged me in the past. Yeah, yeah, Metalworker is, he's pretty good. I don't know if you've noticed. Yeah. Because really, right. it's not the Metalworker that you care about, it's the card that comes after Metalworker, and Metalworker sure. is really good at getting to that card. Yeah, so I, I felt the Forge Master combo was really good. I, I used that several times to win. The rest of the time, let's see, against, against Mark Trogdon uh, in my round one, 
it was actually Razor Mane Masticore, which I found two of in my board that allowed me to win. He, he had no answers for that, and it was able to eat all of his permanent, basically. I want to talk about the Platinum Angel. Did that win you any games? No. Platinum Angel did not win me any games. You were playing I, a Plat? I, I have one Platinum in the board, which I board in against basically anything that I'm boarding in big creatures against. So I'll bring it in against Mud and Fish and things hmm. like that. And it's also in the board against Dredge. I mean, I guess it forces interaction. Yeah, it pretty much does. Unfortunately, it's just it's never been relevant for me, but it's one that I'm keeping in my sideboard anyway. Now, now you weren't running Blightsteel, and I know that that in your in your last game against William Rosa, he thought that you were playing Blightsteel, and that forced him into an awkward situation that eventually cost him the game. Yeah, he was he was worried about me. Um, I that last game against him was pretty awkward. I think. I resolved a Forge Master, but didn't have artifacts in my hand. It was a long time before I had three artifacts in play. The other problem was that he had two energy fluxes that were... Well, he had one energy flux that was holding me back a long time. He was worried. Uh, I ended a turn with Forge Master, Mox Sapphire, and... Metalworker. Was it Metalworker? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I had Forge Master, Mox Sapphire, and Metalworker in play. He was worried that if he didn't win that turn... I was going to be able to, at the end of his turn, Forge Master for Blightsteel and kill him. And, I mean, I guess that forced his hand and made him feel like he had to win that turn, uh, which uh, didn't work out for him. I don't have Blightsteel in the deck, mostly because it would be a challenge to hard cast it at any point. Sure. Uh, I feel like it's largely win more. There are, I mean, Sundering Titan and Worm Coil Engine are both really good finishers that will do the job fast enough for the most part. And there's there's very few times where I feel like I need to kill right away that don't involve Metalworker and Staff of Domination. What about uh, Lightning Greaves? That's kind of an interesting card for workshops, right? Lightning Greaves is amazing. Yeah, it sounds um, really good. I mean, the what's more relevant, the Haste or the Shroud? I'm assuming the Haste. The Haste is really relevant. The Haste definitely gave me a... I, I had this happen in round four against Paul Blakely, who was playing Affinity, and I played City of Traders, a Mox, Metalworker, Mana Crypt, played Greaves, equipped Metalworker, and then tapped Metalworker to play Lodestone and attack for five. <laughs> and I, I mean, that's against Affinity, so obviously he's not playing counters, and I don't know how relevant the attack is at that point. Since I can... And you knew, what, you knew what he was playing? I guess that was game one, so I didn't know exactly what he was playing, but... I played against him before, and I was kind of guessing workshops. Um, okay, because, yeah, I mean, if, if he counters your Lodestone, I mean, you're kind of in a really bad spot, well, right? No, if he counters Metalworker, I'm in a bad spot. But ah. but then next turn, I top-deck Forge Master, played that equipped, and was able to forge Memory Jar and win with that on turn two. <laughs> so I, that's best-case scenario. I'm not going to say that this happens all the time, but, I mean... Metal Worker and Greaves does happen. The problem is that you don't have a lot of cards in your hand at that point. Yeah, I mean, it still seems really good. I mean, late in the game, you kind of have a board, your opponent has a board, and you're kind of playing off the top of your deck. You have the Lightning Greaves in play, and you top deck like a Sundering Titan or a Worm Coil. Right. And play it, equip it, attack. I mean, you're, yeah. it's pretty good. Well, it's good for, I mean, obviously it's good for keeping Metal Worker around. I mean, people can't target it. It's good for right. keeping Forge Master around. And then what it does with the combo, once you draw your deck using Staff of Domination, it allows you to win that turn because you can play and equip the Greaves on Sundering Titan and Wormcoil Engine or two other large creatures, uh, attack, and then use usually something like Triskelion and Phyrexian Metamorph to finish your opponent off. 
that actually came up several times. I mean, whenever I comboed off the whole way, that was certainly relevant. Yeah, no, it seems seems like a pretty sweet card to me, Workshops. Right. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. And, and like I said, the, the deck is more combo-focused than Lockout, so I'm, it, I'm planning it, on winning quickly. It's good against the decks that are running Lightning Bolts to kill Lodestones. I mean, right. kind of, you, you put them on the spot, do you have it right now or not? Yeah, so, I, I had that. I had that happen in a game against a um, fish player at Fog of Dusk the week before the TSO. He, he obviously was playing things like Path of Exile and Source to Plowshares, and I opened up with Lightning Greaves and then played Worm Coil Engine on my next turn, and he quit. Tapped out and attacked for six, and he was tapped out, and that was pretty much game. Like he yeah. he was never able to remove that. None of his creatures could stand up to it. Yeah, I mean, very few instances of not spot removal are going to take care of that. Inventory. Right. It's certainly something that large. is <laughs> going to be a challenge. Right. So what about uh, what about Sam's Rug list? I think Rug is a really good deck. I agree. <laughs> certainly agree. <laughs> uh, I really don't know what to say about it. It's got a lot of different answers to a lot of different things. I mean, the thing, the thing I think puts it apart, we were talking about earlier is before this, was that it's just so consistent. It doesn't uh, have a blowout match against anything. Right. But, I mean, if you draw the right cards and play pretty tight, you can pretty much win any matchup. Right. I think the big key with it is knowing what you can let resolve and what you need to counter. I know my experience playing that deck, there are a lot of times where I will just let something like Ancestral Recall resolve because I'm already holding two or three different counters that will be more effective if they play something else after Ancestral Recall. Right. And yeah, that, I mean, I think that the big metagame slots in the deck are the counter package. I mean, yeah. Bluster Storm, Spell Snare, Metal Missteps, Steel Sabotage, Annul, Spell oh. Pierce. Yeah, yeah, Annul is, is really good. I know that was a change that he made right before the tournament in an attempt to combat both Oath and Mud decks. You know, I don't know that we had any Oath decks at the tournament, but there were certainly re- relevant artifact decks to play that against. Right. He's actually, after Signboard, has a pretty heavy package against Oath. He's got the four cages and also the three Nature's Claims if he wants to bring him in. That's right. pretty heavy, in addition to the, the two Annals main deck. Yeah, Oath is a pretty big challenge for that deck. If Oath gets through and they're able to get especially something big like Grizzlebrand, it's really hard for them to stand up to it because it beats all of their creatures. And yeah, I mean, Gristlebrand as a 7-7 flying lifelink with no other text is pretty terrible for Rogue. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's just really good. <laughs> and actually, you know, I think one of the big keys to that deck and one of the things that makes it so good is Lightning Bolt. Having four Lightning Bolts is just metagame answer currently. There yeah. are so many things that get killed by Lightning Bolt, including Lodestone Golem. Yeah, I mean, and especially in Vintage where the players truly use their life as a resource. Mm-hmm. You know, you're at nine and you're like, no big deal. And then you pass the turn, your opponent attacks with a flip Delver, you go to six and then bolts you twice and you're dead. You're like, yep. oh. Oh, right. oh right. end of turn, play Lightning Bolt. Next turn, flash in Snapcaster Mage, play Lightning Bolt again and attack you with a Tarmogoy. Exactly, yep. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I, the, the one card that, that isn't in there, I think, that I really like is scavenging goose. I think that card's awesome. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess he cuts scavenging goose. I think it has a ton of utility. The life gain's not irrelevant. Right. Getting bigger is not irrelevant. Uh, I think the card's awesome. Yeah. You would probably see people who didn't want to uh spend the money for Tarmogoyf playing scavenging goose and still getting a lot of mileage out of it. Yeah, I could see that. Inter- Which is funny because scavenging ooze is what forty dollars and Tarmogoyf is a hundred. So. Yeah, it's true. Scavenging <laughs> yeah. ooze is no slouch anymore. 
No. It's interesting that he's obviously he's playing green because he's got Goyfs, but Goyf is his only green card. He's playing four Gush and he's not playing well, he's any got, fast bond. This sideboard. Yeah, he's got Nature's Claim and oh, Ancient right. Grudge. I mean, that Nature's Claim is pretty good right now. Um, totally worth it. Yeah, but no fast that, bond with Gush. You don't need fast bond. You, you're pretty light on lands anyway. Yeah, all, all you care about is drawing cards. Yeah, you don't care about how much mana you have to play. Two lands is not. You're not going to combo with it. I mean, it's not. I mean, since the deck has been in existence, it really hasn't played the black cards to you know gush into Yogmoth's will and combo. So true. Yeah, I mean, gush is just free draw two cards. It's really all you care about. Right. Yeah, and that's pretty good. Yeah. The big key with the deck is just being more efficient, and all of the cards in that are the most efficient you can you can be. I mean, lightning bolt, free damage for one mana. Gosh, two cards for free. Mental Mistap, counter card for free. Force of Will. I mean, and then the counter slots are so open to change. Like if Tendril starts to be really popular, you can play four Bluster Storms. Yeah, you can play four um, Mind Breakers. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not surprised that that Rugdelver is at the top of tournaments. It's also really irritating to play against. It's really irritating to play against. I played against it a couple weeks ago out here uh, at our weekly vintage tournament. It was really frustrating. I got pretty stalled on lands, but all the counter spells were just, you know, all they have to do is stick one creature, protect it, and then they just right. win. Yeah, the big theory behind the deck is you can land one creature and then play counter spells for six turns while you win. Right. And that's that that does the job. I mean, and the longer the games go, the better your creatures get. So right. it gets better, Delver flips. Right. So, Jeff, you had an interesting experience at the Team Serious Open. Okay. You want to talk about uh, the politics of concession then? Yeah, Yeah, let's let's hear the story. I I haven't heard the full story. All right. Well, let me tell you the full story. I'm playing against Greg Wester in the first round. So, Greg is a fellow Team Serious member, and he's a good guy. He's playing. High fives, real good. Oh, yeah. He high fives real strong. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Break your arm strong. So he's playing pretty much big blue. He's playing blue bombs, black search, and he's pretty much playing key vault. We play the first game that I win. The second game goes pretty long and he ends up winning. Going into game three, the five minute warning is just sounded. So I'm playing pretty fast and I'm going way too fast and I miss my turn one play because I'm an idiot, which is to play a Grim Lava Mancer. I just instead just pass the turn. I immediately realize it, and I immediately realize that I've probably just lost the game, because as the game goes on, I mean, we're going all right, and we're having a lot of interaction, so my graveyard is filling, and I know that if I had, if I were pinging him for two every turn, I would be winning. And right. I got really focused. I got really angry at myself, and I got really focused on just drawing the game. So, time has been called. I know that I can't win. I have a standstill on the board. On I think it's it's three of turns. He gets key vault online. I pretty much just let it resolve. And then when there are two turns left, he tinkers. I counter it with force of will, and he can't counter. So the tinker uh, just fizzles. And we eventually just run out the clock, and I'm really focused on not losing, so I don't think about the fact that I'm totally dead on the board. Like, there's nothing I can do to actually win this game. Right. But because we're in turns, we draw. 
I didn't even think about uh, about scooping at the time. And then after the tournament, someone was like, oh, yeah, Jeff's such a dick. He didn't even scoop to Greg when Greg obviously had the win. And that was the first time it occurred to me that I just did something that I myself didn't ever think that I would do because I've always said before that if I'm in that situation, regardless of anybody, because some people will say like you should scoop to a teammate, but you don't necessarily have to scoop to a stranger. I would say myself that I would scoop to a stranger because that's the kind of player that I am. But I just, it didn't even enter my mind because I was just feeling so competitive and and I guess just pissed at myself. So that's that's my stance and my apology to Greg on the subject, but talking about that does bring up the whole question of when should you concede to your opponent if you're in turns and the game is going along. Okay, so so this is the first round, right? This is the first round. So first a round. draw in the first round really sucks. Yeah, it's pretty pretty terrible. And um so he had key vault in play. He had key vault in play and was taking unlimited turns. He and he had no seal like, it. mana, mana he, crypt or no. no dark confidant. No. So I would, I would at that point, I would say, show me that you still have Blasteel Colossus in your deck, and I'll scoop. And that's what I should have done, but I didn't. Or, or anything. I mean, he could have had Jace or or anything right. that would have killed yeah. you. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I under, I understand. Like, I mean, if you're playing, if you go to Europe and play in the Bazaar of Moxen, you don't want the loss in your first round. I understand that. Right. But yeah, I mean, like the Team Serious Open's pretty laid back, so I guess that's <laughs> different. Yeah, and and it turned out he went on a losing streak, and he ended up dropping after the third round. When I got to my fourth round, I was playing Nat, and we basically established that even if I beat Nat, I would be just short. I would probably be in fifth place. Right. Um, so you actually scooped to me then. <laughs> so Wait, I is that because Nat. Frank dropped and didn't play his last match? So he got revenge on you. That's possible. That's possible. Tiebreakers might might have gotten you there. It's true. I, I'm not actually sure that would have worked out, but it could be. Um, so, so, so is the question actually that, I mean, what if he didn't have you dead on board? I mean, what if you had just gone to turns and were about to draw? Because, I mean, I think that, especially against a teammate, one of you should win because a win is worth three points and two draws is worth a total of two because it's one point for each of you. Right. You think so? So, so you're one, saying that even if he hadn't had Key Vault on the board, we should figure out a winner, even if none, neither of us are dead. Well, I'm I mean, if, so if in this tournament I'm paired against Nat in round one, and he's playing Belcher for whatever reason, and I'm playing Blue, <laughs> and we go to time, and no one else is playing Blue, I'm gonna say Nat, I'm gonna give you the win because you're gonna destroy <laughs> everyone else. Right. Like I mean, like that. Like you, you can kind of say, you know, okay, we're friends. We drew the game. Which one of us has a better matchup to do well, and right. then the other person should scoop to that person. Well, that's, that's sort of an that's an extreme example, I would say. But we, um, I, you know, I remember playing at a Star City Games event in Chicago, and Juan Rodriguez and I were paired against each other in round one. I was playing Blue White Fish, and he was playing Goblins, and we played to a draw. He beat me pretty easily in game one. I had a really really good game in game two. Neither of us could finish off game three. It was just, you know, we didn't have enough time. And we ended up drawing. And afterwards, I think we decided that, as I said, one of us should have won. We should have declared one of us the winner. And it's, you know, playing goblins and blue-white fish, I don't know who you decide there. I mean, I, I don't know what you come up with that says, this is why you should move on, other than, hey, I'm feeling like a nice guy, you should win, or whatever. Right. 
But, you know, I, I think it really does matter, especially against teammates. And technically, uh, if, in, in that situation, you can't decide with a coin flip or anything, no. right? And no, yeah. absolutely not. You should not be not do that. No. <laughs> and you should also not offer things outside right. of the tournament winnings. <laughs> I mean, you can absolutely say, I will scoop to you, Nat, if you split whatever you win with me. You can't say, uh, I'll scoop to you if you buy me a cheeseburger, unless that's a prize for the tournament. Right. Well, I, I think, I, I mean, once you have signed the match list and stuff, you know, you, you can pretty much do whatever you want. But, right, yeah, I mean, this is vintage. When you're talking about it, you can't offer anything or right. um, can't do anything beyond what's what's available. I mean, as far as concessions are concerned, I've had two instances of drawing, playing Legacy, actually, but I've been playing Brian DeMars' bug list, which is awesome, and I've been <laughs> playing against Blue-White Miracles, and the Miracles players look, that's good. But they don't know what they're doing. So right, their right. tops take a long time. Their brainstorms take a long time. And we get to game three, and usually what happens is I turn one Thoughtseize, turn two him, turn three him, they have no cards, and then turn four, I resolve a Tarmogoyf that's like a six, seven. <laughs> and then we go to turns, and then I can't beat them. And they're like, oh, guess we draw. And I'm like, guess we do. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I mean, it, and one of the persons that was playing Miracles couldn't find and treat the Angels, so they weren't playing and treat the Angels, which seems like a pretty key card for that deck. <laughs> Let's you win the game. So, I, I mean, that's my thought on it. Like, if I was in the, the other position where someone, I had no cards in hand, and they have a Tarmogoyf on play, and I'm, like, doing nothing, I would just be like, you got it. That's right. what I feel about myself, and that's why I'm so angry that I didn't do that at this tournament. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it happens. I mean, I've definitely played in tournaments where I've played and beaten friends. I know this happened to Tuan at least once. I've played and won against friends where I had no chance of making top eight. And, you know, I really should just scoop at that point regardless. So, I mean, it happens because you're, you're in the heat of the moment and you're, you're, you want a game and you, you feel like you're doing well. And then if you get to that point where it's winning in and you can't make it and the other person can, I would just say, you know, like, I'll scoop to you, but you want to play anyway? Well, yeah, but I didn't realize. But the thing was, I didn't realize yeah. I was out and he was potential. You know, we played it out and I creamed him. Yeah, I, th I think it's more obvious when you can say that... Right. I mean, it's it's what we, we, we found when, when I scooped you into, into top four. Like, we played out our games and I beat you, but right. it didn't matter because right. you could get in and I could not. Right. I mean, and I guess that depends, too, because, I mean, some people are really competitive, and I guess I'm not, like, just that competitive. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I always like to play. I mean, I would rather play. Yeah, I would rather play as well. But, but yeah, I mean, I, especially in a 17-person tournament and stuff like that, you know, it's not worth it. It's... I know I talked to some people at, actually, it was just one person at Vintage Championship who was really ticked off because he had one loss. And he was playing against a guy that had two losses, so he was pretty much out of contention for top eight. And the guy with one loss lost. He felt that the other player should have scooped to him, because obviously that guy's playing for fun at this point. This guy still had a chance of getting top eight if he won out. Who's yeah, right I, mean, I, I think Vintage Champs is, is maybe a little different. I mean, it's, it's yeah. like kind of more of a bigger tournament than like the Team Series Open. Yeah, I so, agree, which yeah, makes it more interesting. Right, I agree. I mean, when you get to that point where you actually have, like, a big vintage tournament, which, like, doesn't happen that often, I mean, people are going to be more serious, so... Right. Well, I, I think you should earn your spot in top eight of vintage champs. Right. I mean, I, I mean, unless you make it to the last round and both of you are undefeated. I mean, right. 
Sure. I mean, it might be different if the two guys knew each other or something like that, but even then, I, well, it should be different if both guys know each other, but I think if you're probably not going to see the other person again, play it out, see what happens. Yeah, I think ultimately you, you, dream crush. you, you can't expect anything of a stranger, certainly. Right. I mean, I guess a, a caveat to that is if we go to time and we go to time because my opponent was playing extremely slow and they have the win on the board, I'm not going to scoop to them. Right. Because they're the reason we went to time. Right. Yeah. Yep. I felt that way too sometimes. Yeah. So, and before anyone says that it's I'm a slow player because I'm playing land still, I play land still pretty quickly, and that was the only time I went to time that entire tournament. Your land still deck isn't even land still. We hey, my land still deck right now is is kind of mannish still. Your your land still deck is go play Tinker and win. So. I don't have does Tinker that, anymore. Does it have black in it? Yeah. It's not land still. Well, you Agreed. know, you, know, you all just suck. I can be does whatever it, does it I want. Does it have vent in it? A steam vents? Yeah. No. But it's not Landstill for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody who's playing steam vents and Landstill should be playing Legacy, not Vintage. No, I played a steam vents because I could only play four volcanic islands. Well, why don't you play some fetch lands? I did. And I played one steam vents. You're a bold man. This was also before the printing of Scalding Tarn. Oh. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, actually, it's funny because I always mix up my fetch lands. And I just started playing a Singleton Mountain in the board because I'm a red is so important to me now, so I'm playing four Scalding Tarns. Sure. I'm like, yeah, I know that this weakens me to to Pything Needle, but I hadn't seen Pything Needle lately, and Trogdon totally dominated me when he first turned Pything Needle <laughs> Scalding Tarn, and I'm just like, oh, I don't have a first turn mana base anymore. This seems really sour. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think Blue Red Land still plays four Scalding Tarn. Yeah. All the time. I mean, yeah. you don't change that. I mean, the Landstill list that I played off of were like, AJ Grasso was played Landstill all the time. Yep. And I remember I was looking at your list and at AJ's list when I first started playing Landstill, but I've just sort of changed it all over the place as I've gone. And, and I really like the way that it runs now with a bunch of dudes that I can do things with. I've really been enjoying Viashino Heretic, and I've really been enjoying Grim Lavamancer. They do cool stuff, and I can keep on doing cool stuff underneath yeah. Standstill. I mean, that was before, I mean, that was when 4chain and Vapor was insane because you had no non-land permanents. (laughs) (laughs) So on the opposite side of the combo spectrum from Landstill, I know we talked about this a little bit last week. Burning Wish got unrestricted at the end of September and is finally legal as of October 1st. I, I think some people have been excited about it. Steve Menendian has been talking about it pretty much nonstop. He's developed a list that uses Burning Wish. I played around with it a little bit last week and developed my own list. Just slightly different? Okay, it's pretty different. Anyway, the list that I created is based around Dark Confidant. What I started with, my thought was actually to have a somewhat longer game, but what I really wanted to do was have a turn one play of either Dark Confidant or Burning Wish. Based around that, from Dark Confidant, I also started playing Cabal Therapy to clear the wave to go off, and then from there you can Burning Wish for basically Yawgmoth's Will. What are you... So turn one, you're playing against an unknown deck. The only turn one play you have is a land, a mox, a Burning Wish. Do you cast it? 
Yeah, I'd cast it. That's the what question I wanted to ask too. What do I, you get? I think I would get uh, I'd get Yawgmoth's will. The question would be whether that would be a keepable hand or not. Sure. Going to get Yawgmoth's will often supposes that you have acceleration to play with it out of the graveyard. There are hands that do not work with Yawgmoth's will early. The deck also has other turn one plays. My current list has four Cabal Therapies and a Thoughtseize, Dark Hothra, Burning Wish, Dark Ritual, and the Necropotence. I mean, it's, it's a Dark Ritual-fueled deck. It can play a lot of things on turn one. Yeah, and your Cabal Therapies are also fueled by the fact that you're playing three or four Gataxian probes, right? Right. And actually, I tested this a little bit against, uh, actually, Sam Crollo's Rob Delver list last Monday. I think both of us were surprised at how controlling it could be. Well, not necessarily controlling, but defensive. Opening up with a discarded spell or a taxing probe and a discard spell, and then playing Dark Confidant and getting more discard spells really puts you on a pretty good path to victory. It really doesn't matter what your opponent has in their hand because you can you can get rid of it. And there were times, you know, you get to a point where you look at your opponent's hand and you don't need to take anything out of it because you can just win. So actually, I felt pretty good about it. And then I played against Mud and got dump trucked repeatedly. So that was that was kind of a kick in the teeth. Is uh, it just the spheres that slow you down so you can't get value? We have to think about Burning Wish and Sphere. And the problem with that is that any sphere will add two to your Burning Wish target. Sure. Which is hefty, for sure. And I have two Hercules Recalls main, and then I was playing Shattering Sprees in the board, and Shattering Sprees were just not very good. They didn't do enough for me. I mean, um, any time that you're, you're playing Tendrils of Agony to me, Hercules Recall is insane. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. card can just flat out be like eight storm in a can. Right. And that's that's eventually what I did. My sideboard now includes two more Hercules Recalls. So I'm playing a total of four between main and sideboard. Would you consider Rebuild, since that gets your acceleration and pops up all of Shop's uh, I'm, stuff? I'm sure it'd be, it'd be a consideration. I mean, my, my thought is that it costs one more. I don't know. I, I really need to test it some more against Mud, especially with the new configuration. I felt good about the list, and it has been surprisingly powerful. I, I actually built this without knowing what Stephen Menendian did. <laughs> His list is vastly different. Just um, a little yeah, bit. I, yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the, I think, you know, Wheel of Fortune's good, Necropotence is good, Memory Jar, Dogmoss Bargain, but I think the best draw spells right now in Vintage are Oath of Druid's Crystal Brand. It's just yeah. so good. You draw so many cards. <laughs> And it's not that you so actually draw so many cards. You get access to so many cards because the, the Grizzle brand puts cards in your graveyard, which is like a second hand when you have Yawgmoth's Will. To yeah, I mean, and, and when I found that I was playing Adventure Champs, a lot of times I would draw seven. One of them would be like Mystical Tutor or Vampiric Tutor, and I would be like, okay, cast this, draw seven more. Right. So you know you're getting exactly what you need plus six other cards. Right, right. You know, Stephen Menendian's article is available on Eternal Central. You can download it here for the low, low price of $4.99. I invite you all to check it out and see what all he's doing with it, because we're not going to be able to go over it in detail here, but we will be able to talk a little bit about it. Steve's list is very powerful. I mean, he definitely has turn one plays that are knock your socks off type of thing. And then if that doesn't work, he'll do it again next turn and the next. It is revealed in the Mana Drain thread on this that he is playing Oath of Druids, so I think we're safe talking right. about that. Oh, yeah. And uh, I feel personally that adding the Oath of Druids to me is the very interesting and exciting part of this deck. I'm a little bit less sold on Burning Wish, but it's still interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think that Burning Wish is okay, but I think that 
I would almost rather not play Burning Wish and play other cards in the main deck as opposed to the sideboard. You could play Yawgmoth's Will main deck then. Yeah, it seems good. I mean, I think I think Oath Gristlebrand is awesome. I think if you're playing Oath, you should probably play Gristlebrand. Right. I agree. Yeah. Always the problem with Oath is you get Oath, you get to a point where you can trigger Oath, you get your turn where you can use Oath, and right. then you get a creature in play, and then you pass. That seems terrible. Right. But but this way you can you can get your Grizzlebrand and draw seven cards and win. Yeah, you can draw seven cards, see where you're at. Probably at draw that point seven more. draw seven more, right. Oh, yeah, uh, another interesting interaction, Jaco popped in the Death Star and was talking about Nature's Claim versus Hercules Recall, and a lot of times in that instance, uh, Nature's Claim will let you draw more cards. Oh, sure. Because you can Nature's Claim one of your own artifacts. Right. Or, or your Oath. Wait, or right. your Oath, yeah, I mean, or anything. And if you put those cards in the graveyard, you can then get them back with Yawgmoth's Will that you Burning Wish for. I mean, there's right. lots of stuff. There's plenty of things that you can do once you have Grizzlebrand and Oath active. Yeah, I feel like once you have Grizzlebrand on the battlefield and you trigger it one time to draw seven cards, your opponent is very low percentage of winning that game. <laughs> right. Things just look really bad for them. Yeah, I know I played against Oath at Vintage Championships a couple of times. And I had a couple opponents who got to Oath, and whenever they started doing it, I was like, please don't be Gristlebrand, please don't right. be Gristlebrand. Because if they revealed Blightsteel, or if they revealed Emrakul, I've got time to figure out what I'm going to do. If they reveal Gristlebrand, the game is simply over at that point. Yeah, the problem is, even if you are able to bounce it or kill it or something, they'll still draw seven cards. Yeah, it's 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 over at that point. They're just too far ahead. Yeah, no, I've, I found the same thing playing against Oath, and not at Champs, but like later on playing out here. People would cast Oath and it would go off, and I'd be like, please don't be Gristlebrand. That was my thought. Right. So do you guys believe the hype about this deck? I know uh, Menendian's been talking about it a lot. He says it has amazing matchups across the board. After having test with Burning Wish, I played my list, and I played a little bit with his as well. And uh, I mean, it's it's certainly powerful. Going to get be, Having so much access to Yawgmoth's Will is very powerful. What do you guys think? I, I'm not sure that I'm sold on Burning Wish yet. I mean, I'd like to see the deck make some top eights and win some tournaments first. Right. Yeah, I, in general, for me, I don't believe private testing results, especially when they're so <laughs> lopsided. I just don't. Because everybody comes to, and we see it on Mana Drain all the time, people make a thread about their latest deck and they say, my deck beat every single archetype out there 95% of the time. I think in Steve and Kevin's podcast, they brought up Vintage Champs is kind of like a culmination of all these different metagames that are smashed together. So right. really you have no idea what you're going to play against. I mean, you could play against a Hate Bears deck that they're metagaming against one of their friends. You could play against anything, really. I mean, so right. is it going to beat that? Yeah, we talked about it a little bit last time, actually. And it, what it comes down to is this testing bias. There are a lot of times where someone will put together a list and play it against one of their friends and maybe your friend is not very good at vintage or maybe you're testing it against yourself. Maybe you're two-handed testing and you're coming up with these great results. And is that because the deck is actually good or is that because you're making it good? Yeah, you totally can't get away with two-handed testing. That's, right. that's There's inherent bias in there that is inescapable. I right. agree. In any format, in anything, you, you have to watch out for your testing being inbred. Right. Yeah, I agree. He's got some interesting points to make in his article, and I think a lot of it, he, he tells you a little bit about how to play the deck. Actually, he talks a lot about how to play the deck, and I'm hoping that somebody will be able to put something together with this and Burning Wish and be able to win a tournament with it. Personally, I'd like to see Dark Rituals come back and be a force, but, you know, 
it's hard to say. It's not like anybody has direct control over that necessarily. And I, I agree as well. It would, you know, kind of shake up the metagame a little bit for Vintage. So sure. That would be well, good. For too long, people have been saying, I mean, we've been hearing it for probably a year, maybe more now, the question of, is Rituals even a pillar anymore? And the answer is yes, they've just been sort of waiting at the wayside for something interesting to happen for them. Right. Do you think that if Rituals come back, that people will stop grousing about workshops being too strong? No, they will never stop grousing about <laughs> workshops being too strong. Yeah, I don't think so either. Well, I mean, it, it's it's almost like in Dredge as well, they, they all fall into that category, right? Like, Dredge is too powerful, workshops are too powerful. But, like, um, Nick Detwell was saying something about it, Champs, where you, you almost, like, have to have those archetypes, where right. as people have to sideboard against them. Otherwise, like, whatever is popular, they're just going to be able to have, like, 10 sideboard slots for that. And right. it's going to totally swing everything way out of control. Right. So it's almost it's almost like a, a balance system that has to exist. Yeah. Personally, I'm fine with things like Dredge and Workshops because you have to be able to play against them. Yeah, I mean, in Dredge games 2 and 3 are, can actually be pretty interesting. I like playing against Dredge games 2 and 3. I think they're very interactive games. Yeah, I, I agree. On both sides. I think as far as people grousing about workshops being on top, what it comes down to is that in the end, at any given time, there has to be one archetype that's on top, because we can't ever have true balance in the metagame. If workshops is on top right now by a bit, I don't think that that's a problem, because things are going to change, new printings will alter the landscape, and it'll switch up again. Right. I think one of the things about metagames is that if you're looking at something like a metagame deck, I mean, if you're looking at fish or green-white beats or, you know, something like that, there has to be a more focused metagame for you to try to attack. It, it would be impossible to play a fish deck that has to try and combat blue decks that are playing both Tinker for Blightsteel and Time Vault. It'd be along with fighting against a Dark Ritual deck that's playing Tendrils and Empty the Warrens, and a Mud deck that's playing Lodestone Golems and Forge Masters, and Dredge, and another metagame deck of any any repute, you really have to be able to direct your focus if you're trying to build a metagame deck. And I think a lot of people who are complaining about the prevalence of workshops are people who are excited to play metagame decks and don't realize that the fact that workshops and dredge exist actually makes their job easier because they have fewer targets to have to hit. You know, like, just as much of a play mistake as I should have turned one to rest or cast Oath or cast Confidant is your deck choice, your sideboard choice, and your mulligan choice. Right. So, like, I mean, whatever you think you're going to play against, you could play against a deck that you think can beat that. So, I mean, if you think that you're going to play against eight dredge decks, you should play Dark Times. Right. Or you should play 15 cards in your sideboard that hate against dredge. Right. Or uh, two-card body. Right. Uh, two-card body. We, we've definitely had this discussion when talking about Legacy. Obviously, you and I, Nat, play a lot of Belcher in Legacy. Legacy players are very not psyched to be seated across from Belcher because a lot of them don't play blue. They get very angry when they lose to Belcher, but ultimately... They made that decision to right. bring that specific deck because they felt it had good matchups against however much of the field is made up by of decks that that deck is good against. Right. One of those decks is not Belcher, right. and they made that decision. My favorite is, is always when they're playing specific cards to hate Belcher in the sideboard, and then they don't mulligan to them. It's like, oh, I had these four mind break traps. I just didn't see one in my opening hand. I thought I could wait a turn. No. Yeah, I mean, I think mulligans are a huge play mistake, right. at least 
to wins or losses. Like, right. I know I don't mulligan when I should sometimes because, yeah, I'll get there, right? Right. Well, you have seven cards that look really good. I mean, like, you may, yeah. might have Ancestral Recall or Time Walk or something that's, hey, this is a powerful card. I'm going to win on the back of this. But then, you know, you don't actually draw your relevant eight card and win. So. Yeah, no, and sometimes you don't get that land and you don't get there, which right. if you would have drawn that land, you would have gotten there. But you can only blame yourself because you should have mulliganed in the first place. So we're moving on to the food and drink review. Yeah, let's start in on the food and drink reviews. I want to start out by talking about the <laughs> uh, Water Street Bar and Grill that we went to after the Team Serious Open. Yeah, had you been there before? Uh, I had been there once before. I think it was like three tournaments ago. Okay, yeah. When we went there, and it was good, and it was good again. Uh huh. I feel that I need to introduce myself for my food tastes, because you made fun of me for getting a plain hamburger, but I felt that since we were getting into this, everyone better get a good idea on who I am in this right now. So I am a guy who gets plain hamburgers because I enjoy simple food. I felt that the plain hamburger there was actually pretty good, but it was a little bit bland. They didn't get very aggressive with the seasoning on it, and it tasted a little bit plain, but it was very well cooked, I must say, and was quite good. Do you put ketchup on your burger? I do put ketchup on my burger, but that's ketchup, it. Ketchup, no mustard? No mustard. What about, like, salt and pepper? Do you ever add salt and pepper? Uh, Generally, no. Because you could have added salt and pepper. That's a good point. I could have added salt and pepper, but normally I feel that they're making the burger according to how they feel the burger should be, so I won't add anything to it other than ketchup. Well, that's why you try it first, and then you add the salt and, salt sure. and pepper. And um, did you have fries? I had the fries, and they were quite good. Yeah, I thought their fries were pretty good. You started out with the <laughs> vanilla cheesecake. Yes, I had the vanilla bean cheesecake as an appetizer. Um, that's a Jerry Yang play right there. No, no, it's a me play. I started this. Thing. Yeah, I think that's a Nat play. Oh, man. Uh, my MO at these post-tournament meals is to get dessert first, especially if I do well. It's sort of a reward for myself and, you know, an acknowledgement to the uncertainty that goes along with playing Magic. Just as I could mulligan to zero and not win a game, I could also die before dessert comes, so I just go ahead and eat it first. I'm not hey, sure that you know, metaphor I, really holds up. I, I'm going with it anyway. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I my meal started with the vanilla bean cheesecake, which I thought was surprisingly good. I should also explain that my mom makes a cheesecake that she's well-known, at least locally, for even though it's pretty much the standard Philadelphia cream cheese recipe cheesecake, it's got the, the distinguishing feature of that is that it has lemon zest in it, so you'll taste a little bit of the sour lemon taste. The vanilla bean cheesecake at Water Street Cafe was, or Water Street Bar and Grill, rather, was significantly sweeter, but the vanilla taste was good. Uh, I enjoyed that very much, and I was pleased to get the cheesecake. The real was a California burger, which had avocado, I believe, and pineapple, and uh, I thought it was good, although I was a little disappointed that the pineapple was not a significant part of the flavor. I was expecting a little sweeter, juicier taste, and it just didn't come through. I would have liked liked a little bit more. Actually, the best burger I've had with pineapple on it, I had at Red Robin. So, hmm. go chain restaurants. Interesting. Yeah. I felt that you were a very good salesman for the vanilla bean cheesecake, because I know that after the yep. meal, you said that yep. your vanilla bean cheesecake was very good, and I think that four other people bought it, including me. Yeah. I felt that it was... For one thing, I felt that it was overly sweet. Mm -hmm. And I felt that the vanilla taste was actually a little bit overpowering. Oh, interesting. I actually thought that 
the the consistency of the cheesecake itself was a little bit fluffier than I expected. You know, I thought that too. It was a little bit lighter. Sort of had a whipped taste. Or a yeah, whipped taste. I agree. I felt that it was of the consistency that a normal cheesecake would be when it is room temperature, even though this one was chilled. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and actually, you know, I, when you talk about the vanilla taste being overpowering, I mean, my argument would be that they advertised it as vanilla bean cheesecake. And you're right. Vanilla taste. But anyway, I, you know, I, I thought it was good, and I was I was pleased that we we went there. Another thing we wanted to talk about, for those of you who are over 21, we have some other takes on alcohol as well. Uh, I know Chapel and I are both semi-gin aficionados. You know, I wanted to bring up the gin produced by Watershed Distillery, which is located in my hometown, Columbus, Ohio. You know, I, f- I found this to be pretty good gin. It's got some spices. It's got some nice fruity notes in it. It's got a lot of pine notes. They claim it has eight botanical infusions including juniper berries, cassia, Jamaica pepper, coriander, and a few different citruses. It's been pretty good. My wife and I got it a couple weeks ago, and I've tried it with a few different things, including a uh, ginger syrup made by the ginger people, which I believe we bought at World Market, if anyone's interested. So I mixed it with a little bit of the ginger syrup, some lime juice, and club soda, which was nicely sweet and refreshing. It's actually pretty good neat. Just drinking it straight is okay if you're cool with gin. That's a pretty good tell for gin. Yeah. It it doesn't taste like toilet bowl cleaner. Yeah. That's that's pretty good. I currently am enjoying Leopold Brothers, which is local to Colorado, and they make a normal gin and they also make a navy strength gin. Uh the navy, navy? strength is uh, 114 proof. Oh. So it's a little bit stronger. There's all sorts of reasons why navy strength exists. I'll let you google that on your own. Apparently, the the small batch Leopold's gin won the best American gin from the Wall Street Journal in 2009. Um, I know Leopold Brothers, uh, they make a lot of things, and I know they make them well, so like they sell out really quickly. So I know they're currently expanding their distillery. They made uh, a Maryland-style rye whiskey that's really good. But as far as my gin's concerned, I'm pretty much a gin and tonic drinker. So I bought some really good tonic water. Beaver Tree makes pretty good tonic water, and Q makes good tonic. So I'm a fan of the gin and tonic with a cucumber, a lemon, or a lime. Oh, nice. Yeah, I have to admit that I haven't had the Watershed gin with tonic yet. It's, it's coming. I just haven't done it yet. I mean, and if you want a more maybe like complex adult gin drink, I would recommend the Negroni. What's in the Negroni? Negroni is equal parts gin sweet vermouth, and a bitter, like an Aperol or Campari. Oh, interesting. And with they're usually garnished with a slice of orange. Makes sense. It's a pretty good breakfast drink. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Actually, a lot of drinks are pretty good breakfast drinks once you get down to it. It's just That's true. So, Jeff, what's your favorite gin? Well, since I am a non-alcoholic person, I did a very quick Google search, and the first... Google has told me that Hendrix Gin is top of the line, and so that's what I'm going to go with, because Google told me so. That's made with rose petals correctly. Um, maybe? That seems that neat. <laughs> that's, that's a stellar recommendation. Hey, what can I say? I mean... Google's pretty good. Yeah. I, I'm, I'll trust them. 
I mean, if you told me Bing recommended it, I don't know, but uh, I'm yeah, bad with Google. You can't if trust If you told me, Bing. like, the, the, the best gin you found was Mr. Boston's anything, I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could go and see what gin re- they recommend on bum wines, but that doesn't seem to be the most reputable source. I'm well-versed in the bum wines. Everyone loves They it. recommend Thank bum you. wine. <laughs> so that should be the next episode, bum wines. Agreed. Uh, I guess I'll have to get some bum wines then. I've actually had Night Train, so I could speak on that one. There you go. I think it's great. I do not. (laughs) $3.29 and they'll set you right off on the night. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. And I hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Bye. Bye. Take a little trip. Take a little trip.